we have been going through the book of Luke for some time, have we not? And we're getting here to the end, chapter 24. So next week is really the end, but here we come to a very well-known passage of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus following the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to read from that passage here in just a few moments. And so if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, verse 13, if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 885 is where you can find that passage, and it's always helpful to have it open as we go through it together. <clears throat> One of my favorite all-time songs is a song called Rescuer Below. And so the, one of the first lines is this line. I was a mighty sailor who had sailed by every chart, burdened with an empty vessel, burdened with a heavy heart. I thought I'd faced my every weakness in this lonesome sailor's life, but I was lost at sea and lost in harbor, lost without a cloud in sight. So the song brings you in, as any good song would, to a story of a mighty sailor who's tried every chart. My guess is there's some mighty sailors in here. You, you just tried every chart, and you thought, okay, this is the answer, and I'm going to go down here, and it's going to lead me to the shoreline that I really have been looking forward to, but it just never satisfies, and I love how he says it, I'm lost at sea, and I'm lost at harbor. I mean, it doesn't matter where I go, I end up being lost. And then he has this divine encounter, when I first saw lightning, when I first heard thunder roll, that lightning ripped apart my steering wheel. So I, I mean, you see that? I'm beginning to take my hands off the steering wheel. The thunder sent shudders through my soul. I looked above for rescue. The sight of shore sometimes brought hope. So this guy has some kind of divine encounter, and he thinks, okay, this is the chart that's going to finally get me to the shore that I've been looking for. And, and occasionally I can see it looks like I'm going to arrive at the shore, but I, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite get me there. It brings me hope, but I'm not arriving. And that's because this last line, my soul was unaware that the rescue actually is from below. He, he has to get reorientated. He, he, he thinks that the way to get to where he wants is God's going to get him to his own shoreline. And God has a different shoreline in mind. And he talks about it as a mystery. We're floating on the surface of this deepest mystery, unaware of all the rescues taking place beneath the sea where the one who died the deepest, that dived the deepest waits for failing, falling souls. But the surface holds us captive from our rescuer below. The mystery with Jesus, the mystery of following after Jesus, is that it begins with a great descent. It, that's where Jesus comes down. And he dives the deepest, and he waits for souls who are finally ready to let go of their steering wheel, who are captive to the surface of this world, who may even think Jesus has come down to bring them to the shoreline of their own hope. 
And he's like, now the shoreline is below. Is when you finally let go of all the things that you thought were necessary and you find the rescuer, you find life below. And so he concludes, the songwriter says this, I think of all the time I've wasted helping others to the shore, to that temporary refuge from this life within a storm. If you could hear what I'm hearing, if you could see what I see, you would not mourn my drowning. You'd come falling after me. So he spent some time thinking, hey, I've had this divine encounter. Come join me and let's all get to the shore together. And then he realized, that's wasted time. That's, that's completely wasted time. The, the, the disciple, the, 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 the sailor needs to understand the mystery of Jesus is letting go of all these things and trusting that when you let go, that you're going to find the rescuer below. And we don't have to take the song's word for it. Matthew 16, if anyone desires to come after me, what does he must do? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life in this world will lose it. See, if you, if you cling to the surface, if you even use Jesus to get to the shoreline of your own hope, then you're going to lose your life. But if you let go of all those things, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will find the rescuer below. Matthew 18. You know how the rulers of this world like to exercise their power over you? That's not our way. Instead, whoever would truly be great must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must become a slave. So the mystery is Jesus invites us into really an upside-down world. But what can happen is when we have a divine encounter, we just appropriate it to our thinking and our way of doing things. And really, it's something completely different. And so today, I want to talk about this reorientation to Jesus. The rescuer below describes a journey that every soul following Jesus has to take. It might be might think of it as I did this week. It's more like a second journey. You have this divine encounter, but then you realize, hey, this Jesus that I'm following isn't really the real Jesus. I need to have a reorientation to a rescuer that is below. So let's look at this disorientation and reorientation of these disciples. We see a compressed view of it here in Luke chapter 24. Verse beginning with verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk along? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last days? And he said to them, Well, what things? And they said to Jesus, Well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped 
See, we had, we had an expectation, we had a vision that he was the one to come to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find it, and they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus said, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures all the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going to go further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we talked? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon Peter. Then they told whatever happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come as disciples some of us are probably disoriented. And so would you use this text and the life of these two disciples who had an encounter with you to bring us to encounter the real Jesus today, I pray in your name. Amen. So it's on the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. <clears throat> two of these disciples are leaving Jerusalem. They're going to a small town that's about seven miles away. The town's called Emmaus. And we only know one of the names of the disciples, Cleopas. He's along the road with some other person who's been following Jesus. We're not sure who it is. Bible, Bible scholars uh, assume it's probably uh, that Cleopas is not one of the 12 disciples, but he's part of one of the larger group called the 72. If you remember back in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 72 pairs, two by two, and Cleopas was probably in that group. So he's met Jesus, he's following Jesus, he's talking to people about Jesus. And some scholars think that the person Cleopas is walking with is that same partner, his two-by-two -two partner. They're, they're walking, and you can imagine, they're completely dismayed. We, we were part of this small group that knew Jesus. We, we heard him teach, and then he asked us, Go teach what you've heard me say. And we did it. We saw lives changed. And we had hoped. We had these hopes. But now there's this massive disorienting. The, the word trusted or we had hoped means to trust or expect in. They trusted or expected in a particular version of Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations, it's disorienting. Everybody who meets Jesus for the first time has some sort of expectations that, that then have to sort of fall away. And they, we see that's happening here 
in this group. We had hoped. They're very disoriented, and I find this whole conversation funny because we know Jesus is walking with them. In verse 19, they share their false hopes to G- about Jesus to Jesus. He comes up and he says, well, what are you talking about? Well, we had hopes in this guy named Jesus, and it's Jesus standing there talking with them. And he says, well, tell me about your false hopes. I mean, he didn't say it that way, but that's what he, he's inviting. And he says, see, you, we were followers of this man, and he was powerful. This is the word in Greek that means dynamite. He was dynamite. I mean, when you got next to him, things happened. He, was, he had power. He exploded onto the scene. And we were so sure that when we were here a week ago and this thousands of people were coming in Jerusalem and Jesus was riding on a donkey and everybody was laying down their palm branches that he was going to come in and he was going to kick butt. And he was going to finally get rid of the Romans. That's what we expected. We knew he was going to come redeem Israel. That's exactly the power that Moses displayed. That's exactly the power that King David displayed. And he was going to be one of these people that was going to come in, and he was going to finally use his power, and he was going to restore us to our position of power. That's what we expected. We're going to be king of the mountains, they thought. You ever play that game when you were a kid? I love that game. (laughs) You know, king of the mountain. Play with your friends or your family, people that you're bigger than. And uh, I particularly enjoy the game. If they say, let's do the relay race, Paul. I was like, I'm not into the relay race, but let's do king of the mountain. Because you're all trying to get to the top of whatever it is, the piece of furniture or whatever you're on, and you throw people off who are on your mountain. And so that's what they thought. They thought, we've been down here, we've been subservient to these Roman people, and we had hope that Jesus was going to come, and he was going to bring us to the top. He's going to make us king of the mountain with him. Except Jesus didn't get them to the shoreline of their expectation, so they've lost hope. Listen to this one uh, comment from a commentary. You will learn in your journey with Jesus that every idol must die, even the idol of what we thought Jesus would be. So you come in and you have expectations, and usually you just appropriate them from your own current expectations. I thought Jesus was going to get me to the shoreline of my current desires. He was the ticket to get me to happiness. And that's what the disciples thought. He's going to come in and defeat their enemies, the Romans. He's going to put their political party in charge, and their power is going to be restored. They're not going to have to pay oppressive taxes anymore, and finally they'd have increased financial stability and comfort and safety. See, for Jesus, and this is what we need to see about these men and maybe about ourselves, was Jesus had become a means to their end. I want to get somewhere, and I'm looking desperately in this life for something or someone to get me to that thing. And it could be money, it could be power, it could be comfort, it could be financial rewards. Whatever it is, I'm looking for that. And they found out there's nothing in this world that can do it. Jesus can get me to the things that I want. No. No, see, that's a false shoreline. And we need to hear this carefully because the false hopes of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the false hope of power, 
politics, king of the mountain, comfort, financial security, freedom. They might describe the road that some of us are on. We need to ask ourselves, are we on the road of a biblical gospel which exalts Jesus above everything? A biblical gospel that calls us to lay down our lives? Or are we actually setting our sights on another shoreline? We're expecting Jesus to bring us to the shoreline of our own desires. Is Jesus the end or is it Jesus the means to an end? I remember hearing John Piper in a sermon say, if you got everything you wanted in heaven but Jesus, would that be okay? You know, and some people might be, I guess so. I mean, if I got everything I want. See, then he's just the means to the end. And the disciples have a wrong or disoriented view of who Jesus is. And we need to ask ourselves, are we eager to love our enemies and pray for them? Or are we eager to label our enemies? To look down on them? And maybe to get rid of them? I was talking to somebody who was writing, I guess this was in 2020, in town behind somebody who had a bumper sticker of the opposite party. So they're behind this car with this bumper sticker. And it wouldn't matter who it was because there are people on both sides. And they said, I just wanted to run them into the ditch. <laughs> uh, are you here to love your enemies or to run them into a ditch? So you have to check yourself. Come and love your enemies. Lay down your life for your enemies. Do we want to hold out the power of God's word like water to a thirsty soul? Or we would rather use God's word as a weapon in a culture war? Do we expect Jesus to lead us into positions of power? Do we trust Jesus in part because we believe he's going to bring us to the shoreline of financial stability. He's going to bring us to the shoreline of comfort. He's going to bring us to the shoreline of freedom. Or do we really think what he meant when he said in Matthew 18, you know how the rulers of this world like to exercise their power? That's not how we're going to do it. I mean, do we, I mean, we read that, but do we really believe it? He's saying, you know how Americans like to exercise their power and lord it over you? Oh, yes. And, and what you're expecting is, and you're going to be on top of all that. And he says, you know what? We're not doing that. We're not doing it that way. My kingdom's coming in a completely different way. It's you being a servant or a slave to all. See, the rescue for Jesus is always going to come from below. And, and these guys had a different idea. The rescue was going to come from above. It was going to put me on top. And I was going to be king of the mountain. I was going to get everything I wanted because I followed Jesus. Learning that Jesus doesn't intend to rescue by bringing you to the shorelines of your expectations is disorienting. And these guys are disoriented. We had hoped. But now we've lost all our hope. And I want to just see this second stage after this disorientation. There's a disorientation to a burning heart. We see at the very end. My favorite verse here is verse 15. While they were talking, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. I love that. 
Jesus just can't let us go. I mean, here are these two guys totally disoriented. They have a totally different vision. They've been following Jesus, and they have a different vision of Jesus than he's been putting down. And they're, they're totally disoriented. And he comes up and says, I just can't let you two guys go. And so he comes up, and he's walking next to them. And then he says, just tell me your story. Before anything, Jesus says anything, I would have wanted to bust in on these guys so quickly and the first thing he says, oh, can I ask you a question? What are you talking about? And they're in double disorientation. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? And, of course, he, they're talking to the only one who does know what's going on. <laughs> and then he allows them. I love this about Jesus. They get to pour out all their bitter story before he says anything. Can you tell me what you're talking about? Can you tell me about all your false hopes? I'll, I'll just listen the whole time. Remember the, when the woman that was bleeding touched the hem of his garment? And Jesus stops the crowd and it says, he stopped and listened to her whole story. All the way she tried to fix herself. And he's just willing to sit and listen to all the ways. Paul, just tell me all the ways you falsely tried to fix yourself. Oh, I thought this was going to work, Jesus. Oh, I thought this. I thought you were going to help me get to this. These are all the things. And he just wants all that to be poured out. They obviously don't believe in the women's testimony because on the very day of the resurrection, they're leaving town. I don't know if you know uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, but um, I was talking to Burke Bonner, Heather Bonner, Mike Bonner's son. He's maybe, I don't know, eight. Um, and we were out, we happened to be at the park together, and he was reading The Horse and His Boy. And if you remember this, this is just for uh, Narnia fans. When uh, Shasta crosses the mountain and Aslan walks with them, that's a picture of this road to Emmaus. And the little boy doesn't know it's Aslan, the Christ figure, and he says, Are you someone who's dead? No, no, I'm not dead. I'm alive, and I'm going to show you that I'm alive. And he says to the man, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart. Foolish ones means not thinking in the Greek. Guys, you're just not thinking right. You know, when you have trusted in something and have expectations and somebody comes next to you, you say, I'm thinking right. And Jesus said, you're not thinking right. And your slow of heart means your emotions are attached to the wrong objects. You're not thinking and you're not feeling in the right directions. And not unkindly, he just comes in and says, show me all the ways you're thinking wrong and feeling wrong, and then let me just try to turn that ship towards me. The mind and the emotions can lead us in different directions and the way we come back to what's right is what Jesus did. What does he do? He just talks to him about the Bible. He doesn't do anything that seems super fantastic. He doesn't start glowing or go up in the air or anything like that. I mean, he says, hey, you're, you're, you're thinking wrongly and you're feeling wrongly. Here, let me help you. 
This is the help every soul needs. This is the help you and I need every morning. Because I wake up and I might start thinking wrong and feeling wrong. And the Bible is our reorientation point to the real Jesus. And as they walk along, they get this great lecture in Old Testament history. And what they find out is that Jesus' road all along was intended to be a road of suffering and then glory. Verse 26. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Jesus should take this road, should suffer and then enter into his glory? And then I want to show you all his suffering and glory beginning with Moses and all the prophets and all the scriptures that point to Jesus. See, Jesus never intended to use power or politics or prosperity to bring him glory. That's the way the world does it. And I don't have to tell you this, that's a very enticing way. It's very enticing to say, I want Jesus to bring me power political stature and money and it's so powerful and he's trying to reorient them and say no real glory comes from being last being slave drowning giving up your life and that's so counterintuitive to our way of thinking all the temptations that these disciples were willing to fall for politics power and prosperity you know where jesus first heard those from satan in the desert there's another road to go jesus go one of these way i'm not going that way that's not the way we're going to do it here and he has to reorient his disciples that way i think as jesus began to tell about his great descent his sacrifice which started in genesis 3 i think they began to understand if that's the way jesus is going that's the way he wants me to go suffering and then glory if anyone would come after me if anyone wants to experience resurrection glory he must first deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever drowns whoever lets go of the steering wheel Whoever lets go of their false expectations of the shorelines of their own hopes will save, will find life. I want to close this by using one more example from the Bible and then a video. Let's just see one compressed reorienta reorientation. Peter. After three years of following Jesus, Peter brags about being the greatest. I mean, if you ever said things, you just go, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I mean, he's got a, Peter's got lots of those. He's got a hall of fame of things you wish you hadn't said. But I just want you to, I want you to get inside of Peter's skin and probably feel your own heartbeat in this. I want to be great. And Jesus is going to propel me to greatness. Then in the garden, I want to be powerful. So I pull out a sword and I want my side to win. I'm ready to kick butt. 
I want you to feel the power of that, especially when you come on an election year. I want to be in power. I want us to be in control. I want to be on the top. We've got to be the king of the hill. That's so enticing. And finally, he denies Jesus. I don't want to suffer much. See, these are, these are things that claw at our attention. I really would love to have a position. I really would love to have power. And I don't want to suffer. Jesus, can you bring me there? Answer, no, that's not my way. My way is through suffering. So finally in John 21, remember Jesus asked him three questions, the same question. What was it? Do you love me? See, I can see, Peter, I, I can see you love you. I can see you love your version of me. Can we drop those things and can you just love me? Peter, when Jesus, Peter says, yes, Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself, you walked whatever, wherever you went. But now we're turning that around. Now you will be carried to places you do not want to go. Mm. This was, Jesus said, to show what kind of death Peter was going to glorify Jesus. You see that? How does Peter glorify Jesus? Not being by the greatest, but by hanging on his own cross upside down. I love how the word does all the work. That Jesus comes along beside these disoriented disciples who had really followed Jesus and said, Jesus is going to take me to the shoreline of my own desires. And then he reorients them by just saying, let's go back and look at the Bible and see that the whole Bible story is just about me. And once you see these pictures of Old Testament suffering and then glory, and then you see how it attaches to me, then you can just look at me and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, even if the rescue comes from below. There's a great little piece of a sermon that Tim Keller did and our own Pete Artemenko put it in a video some time ago, and I wanted to show you that as part of a concluding the sermon. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all while God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, 
who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. <laughs> is that a type? See, that's not typology, it's an instinct. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's, he's the real Passover lamb. He's... He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. See, when you recognize that, <clears throat> you see Jesus. And once you see that, then that, that's what begins to change your heart, your mind, your emotions. To say, I'm willing to drown to find this rescuer below let's pray Lord you have a way of working through your word that I can't do but we're like these two disciples many of us are disoriented we have hopes in this life that aren't going to come true now and we thought because we followed you we wouldn't have this problem and we might be like the disciples were walking away from the resurrection. So I pray today you would help anyone who's on that road turn around, go back. To, to let go of the surface that's holding them captive and find that when they give up all of their hopes, they will find all of their hopes realized in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.